we have been studying together the book of, of Revelation. And uh, basically all that we have covered to this point, believe it or not, is, is the introduction. If you start figuring out that we've been seven weeks into this thing and we're now in the seventh verse, and if we took that amount of time, we're going to be way into the 21st century by the time we get done with this thing. I mean, literally. But we won't do that. Listen very carefully. One of the things that we have been doing over the last several weeks because of the, the richness of the content in the first part of the book of Revelation as he introduces this book, that content is so overarching to you understanding everything about the Christian life and about God and the Bible and all of that. So what we've kind of been doing over the last several weeks as we've been introducing this book is, is we've just been trying to introduce to a lot of folks uh, in this place to the Bible and just to some of the big pictures that are in the Bible. And what's been kind of neat for those of us who have been around for a while is this has been a great review to bring us back to some of the, the very basic things of the Christian life things that you cannot ever let out of your grasp or out of your thinking when you approach the Word of God. And uh, kind of like the, the old hymn, the, I love to tell the story. I think it's the last verse that says, I love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And you know what? The truths of the Word of God, it doesn't matter how many times you go over them, how many times they're repeated. And they just become more and more glorious as we progress on. And all God's people said, oh, okay, well, that's just the warm-up. But I, I was thinking this week, as we're coming now to, to just a monumental verse this morning, I, I was thinking today, of, of, or, or this week in preparation, of what this, what this was like in you know, our whole study of the book of Revelation. And this is going to sound a little bit weird, but, but the book of Revelation and the study of it for most people is is a lot like the way people watch The Wizard of Oz. You remember the great movie, The, the Wizard of Oz? What, what, what happens in, in The Wizard of Oz is, is this is a, a movie that is just, I mean, it's full of entertainment. You know, I mean, it, it's got it all. I mean, it, it's, it's all there, and it's a, it's a fast-paced kind of a deal, you know. I mean, it's moving, and man, uh, things are coming out of the woods, and you know, all kind of weird stuff happening, and and it's very entertaining, and it's very exciting. And in the midst of all of the excitement and entertainment, most people don't ever really figure out what The Wizard of Oz was really all about and what that movie was trying to say. There, there was a message in the midst of all of that entertainment and, and all of that excitement and all of those wild things that were going on. There, there's a message. Now, this was back in the day when movies had messages, you know. I mean, nowadays, it is just, it's just that. Just find a zillion different ways, you know, to entertain people, but there's no, uh, there's nothing to the thing. And the book of Revelation is, is a lot like the Wizard of Oz. It's got a lot of the same components, you know? I mean, all these wild things that are going on in this book, things that make this book so exciting and something, man, well, what's going to happen next? You know, we want to find out more and more about this, but, People come to it in the midst of all the entertainment in the book of, the Re of Revelation, and in all the excitement, they miss the theme of what's going on. And just like in the movie, The Wizard of Oz, if you miss the theme of it, what was the good of all of the entertainment? You know? Now, just think with, with me for just a sec. Now, the message isn't going to be about The Wizard of Oz, but we're going to spring off of this thing. What was the message of The Wizard of Oz? What, what is it? There's no place like home. Good. Some of you got it. And, and just to make sure, just to make sure that you don't miss it, the writer of The Wizard of Oz comes down to the end, and, and they even make her say, so what have you learned? Okay, and she's about to give you the theme of this thing. She says, I have learned that I am not going to look for happiness any further than my own backyard. You know? And, and so... Well, there it is. That's the whole message of it. And you know what? The whole way through that movie, that's what the author has been screaming out to you. You got, really, everything that you need right at your fingertips. And you know, begin to go back and watch all of the ways 
that that theme comes through that movie. Okay, remember here's Dorothy. She wants to get home. You know, it started out with her wanting a, something over the rainbow, some you know magical, mystical place. You know, and so she heads down this road and she meets this guy, a, a scarecrow at the beginning, and he wants to go with her because he doesn't have what he needs either. He doesn't have well, he doesn't have a brain. And he, here he is, you know, he's up on this stick, you know, like this. And, uh, you know, here's intelligent Dorothy. And uh, she's trying to figure out how to get him off of the thing. And he says, well, I'm not too smart about these things, but I think if you just take that nail and turn it around, I think I'll come off. And bam, you know, he, he's down there. He doesn't have what he needs. I'm not real smart, but I think if you do this, I need a brain, okay? And you already begin to see, there's the theme of the movie. And then it comes to the, you know, the, the, whatever, the tin man, and he's got no heart, you know. And as they're going through the whole, whole deal, you know what the, the guy with no heart is doing? <laughs> I'll tell you what, we gotta get Dorothy out of there, you know. No heart. But he can't stop crying. And here's the lion, and he needs what? No, he doesn't. Courage! <laughs> Okay, he needs this courage, but when Dorothy is locked up in that castle, who's going to go get her out? The guy with no, stay with me, courage. You guys will work on that this afternoon. But, but all the way through that whole movie, what the writer is, is doing is he's showing you the theme of this movie. And he just finds all kinds of different ways to keep showing you that same theme so you don't miss the thing. And in the midst of all the entertainment, most of us miss it, don't we? Oh, so that's what that movie is about, huh? And it's that same way in the book of Revelation. There's all these things that are going on. But all it is, is God just showing you all these different ways, the same thing, the same thing. There's something He's wanting you to see. And today, in our passage, what we're going to begin to see is, is that theme. He's going to state it for us. And then now, for the rest of the book, he's just going to be pounding that thing to make sure that we don't miss the theme of the book of Revelation. Now, let's just back up before we get there to just uh, kind of walk through what we've seen thus far. We noted in the first part of verse 1, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 1, if you look at it, we've noted the, the purpose of the book of Revelation. It is, you can see it there, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ or the unveiling of Jesus Christ. The purpose of this book isn't to mystify people. It isn't to blow their minds away with all kinds of wild and hairy things. What he says, the purpose of this book is to reveal Jesus Christ in all of His glory. How He really is. Who He really is. Because you see, when He came to this earth, the first time, he came veiled in human flesh, and the only ones who ever really saw who he was were the people who looked through the eyes of faith to see what others could not see. But here is a book that reveals him. It, it, it reaches up and it removes the veil to show the Lord Jesus Christ in, in all of his splendor and majesty and, and glory of the, the resurrected Christ here he is. That's the purpose of the book. And John goes on in verse 1 to say <clears throat> that God's purpose in revealing him was so that we, his servants, would know the things that are about to take place on this planet. The things, he said, which must shortly come to pass. He wants us to be able to see the revealed Christ and all the events that are going to come to pass as he is revealed and He wants us to know those things so that we can prepare our lives and, and so that we know in light of these things how to invest our lives. And, and so He lays out for us the, the purpose of the book. And then in the remainder of verses 1 and 2, He goes on to show us the transmission of the book, how it was that the revelation was transmitted or how it actually came to its human author, John. And verse 1 tells us that God the Father gave it to God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and He gave it to His angel, and the angel gave it to John. 
John goes on to tell us in verse 2 that though he was the human author, the words of this book aren't really his words. He says they are the word and words of God. And that the prophecy that, that he received was not just the things that God you know, indiscriminately said, hey, why don't you write about these things? What, what he says there is that it is the record of the events that God actually allowed him to see. He was able to see these things. Now, now check this out. Way back in, in the last part of the, the first century, John was able to actually see the things that are going on, on on this planet in the last part of the 20th century and certainly the first part of the, the 21st century. In other words, he was he was able to look and see things that in 95 or so A.D. hadn't taken place, and yet he was beholding those things that will be taking place within the next decade, the very time that we are presently living in. And he was able to see these things. And you say, how in the world could he see something that wasn't going to take place on this planet for 1,900 years? I don't know. Because I'm not God, but I do know what God tells us about Himself in verse 4, and that is He is the God that exists in all tenses of time, all at the same time. He is He which is, and which was, and is to come. And He's all of those things at all times. So, it's no problem for God to be able to show John the things that wouldn't take place for over 1,900 years on this planet. And since it's no problem for him, it's no problem for us, right? Okay, then he moves on to the blessing of the book in verse 3, where God, like in no other book of the New Testament, promises a special blessing for he that readeth the words of this prophecy and they that hear the words of this prophecy, which is, is more than just hearing audibly somebody speak the words of the book, the verse goes on to explain, they that keep the words that are written in this book. So there's a special blessing that comes with this book. And then in verse 4 comes the greeting of the book. And it's it's more than just a, a boy howdy. It's more than just a, a, hey, peace, man. More than just, hey, grace. You know, I, I recognize that grace is, is the Greek's way of greeting one another. I, I recognize that shalom... Peace is the way that the Jews greeted each other. And I know how that's used all the way through the New Testament, but you've got to see that what's really taking place in verse 4. It is God's offer of grace and peace from the eternal God that verses 4, 5, and 6 lets us know is manifested in three persons. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. That's the message that he wants. This is a book that we talked about last week that is full of everything under the sun and in the sun and on the sun. Everything but grace. And everything but peace. And yet this book begins with that offer from God Himself to you. An offer of grace and peace. And then coming out of all that, the Lord leads John to disclose to us now the theme of the book. And you see, God is God is the master teacher. There are a lot of great teachers in the world, but if they if they're a good teacher at all, let me let me just tell you, what they do is they employ principles that that God employed in laying out his his, his word. He he is the master teacher. He's obviously the greatest author who has ever lived. And, and God knows that it's impossible to understand any book unless you understand its theme. You've got to understand the theme, the, the main subject of it. And so, so here we come now to the seventh verse of this book. Okay, And if you've been with us in this study thus far, you know that the number of perfection and completion in the Bible is the number seven. And God wants to make sure that we perfectly and completely understand the theme of this book that perfectly completes His revelation to man. And that theme is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And, and listen, 
That is so very, very important that you understand that. Verse 7 begins, Behold, He cometh. And what you find that God does in this book, and, and this, is where, this is where most people lose their neck in the book of Revelation, and, and they get everything, start going out, out of whack here. But what you find that God does in this book, after stating the theme right there at the beginning of verse 7, is He brings you four times through the tribulation period, which of course culminates with the second coming of Christ. You've got to understand this. Now, now, now just, just think with me for just a second. We're coming to the book of Revelation. What I'm, what I'm saying to you here, God's showing you the theme right here in this seventh verse. He's saying to you, and, and we know this because of what the rest of the book is going to be. Here comes the theme of this thing. and You're going to watch it as it goes through now. You see, you've got to understand some things if you're really going to get this. We are Americans, most of us. And one of the characteristics of Americans and one of the things we pride ourselves in is we can get the job done, you know. And so what we've got our yellow pad, you know, and this is the way we start our day. We write down, you know, here's my to-do list. Here's all the things I've got to do today. And we do all this stuff. And then after we've done all that, we start organizing them. We put them in a line. But when we think, you don't do that? Okay, well, most of us, that's the way that, we, the way that we do that. But when we think, we think in a line. We think in a straight line, and I've got to do this, this, and this, and this, because I've got to get to this. Okay. Now, what you've got to understand is the Asian mindset doesn't work that same way. Now, that doesn't mean Americans are right and Asians are wrong. It doesn't mean necessarily Asians are right and, and we're wrong. But you need to understand how Asians think. Asians think in a circle. And we found this the first time that we went to India. And you know what? As an American, you can go into that culture and, and go crazy. You know? Because you're like, wow. You know? And it's not that they're stupid. It's just they don't think like you. But we're thinking in a line. They're thinking in a circle. And... And, you know, we, we've got these, these conflicts about the way that we think we ought to approach this day. And all of you guys that were on that first trip to India, you know what I'm talking about. We, we've seen the same kind of thing in, in the Philippines. Now, be that as it may, what you need to understand is that the Bible is not an American book. The Bible is an Asian book. Okay? And when God lays out his Bible, he doesn't, he didn't lay it out for necessarily Americans, it's for all people, but you've got to remember something about, about this thing when you begin to approach it. So, so now, get this, if you're going to understand this book, the book of Revelation, there's some things that you better know. First of all, you better know what the theme is. You'll lose your way. You better know where God's going with this thing. And secondly, you better know how He thinks. You better know when He begins to present His truth and He begins to present this theme, you'll miss it if you don't understand how he thinks and how he's laid that truth out. So let me just take a second to show you in the book of Revelation these four accounts of the tribulation period in this book and how they culminate with the second, the theme of the book, the second coming of Christ. And, and I'll just say you can do anything that you, you know, you want with your Bible and, but I'll tell you this. I, these things, what I'm about to give you right here is, is so important that I, I've transferred these things that are on your study sheet. I've transferred those right here into the front of the book of Revelation in, in my, my Bible because I want to, as I'm, you know, a year from now and we're not studying this stuff and it's not as fresh in my mind, when I come to the book of Revelation, I don't want to lose my way. I want to know where I am at all times in, in, in this book and so I would encourage you that if you don't mind writing in your Bible, if you've got enough, you know, a wide margin Bible, or even if you don't, if you can just find the room somewhere to get this in there, I'm telling you, it is that important that you get this so that you don't lose your way in this book. Okay, so let me give them to you this way. First of all, the four accounts of the tribulation period. The first one is in chapters 4 through 6. Now, now there's some other things that, that I've got at the front of my Bible and, and somewhere in the next couple of weeks, y'all remind me, I, I want to show you what those things are too. But th this is key, okay? This four accounts of the tribulation period. In, in chapters 
Uh, the first one is in chapters 4 through 6 under the figure of seals. Not the kind that bark, but the kind that you, you open, okay? Not, not, or, 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 you know, not that kind of seal. We're talking about a sealed book, as it were. The second one, in chapters 7 through 11, under the figure of trumpets. The third time through is in chapters 12 through 14, where he brings you through uh, the, the tribulation period, accentuating the work and ministry of the Antichrist. And then the fourth one is in chapters 15 through 19 under the figure of vials or bowls. Vials, V-I-A-L. Vials or bowls. Okay, but as I just mentioned now, you understand that the tribulation period culminates with what event? The second coming of Christ. Okay, so you can see already that if he's bringing you through four accounts of the tribulation period, then there are going to be four accounts of the second coming of Christ. And you've got to look at that thing and you've got to be asking yourself, okay, now why, why four? And we've been doing this all the way through the study, just asking a lot of why questions. Why, why four? Why not three? Why not five? Why, why not two? Why is he bringing you through? And I'll show you in just a second, but let me give them to you. And I want you to look at them with me. The first one, the first account of the second coming of Christ is in chapter 6. Verses 12 through 17. And turn over there if, if you would. Chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. And watch it. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. And, and God just wants you to know, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how tough you are, or how great you think you are in this world, when you come to that event, you're going for cover. You're hiding. There's no tough guys on that day. Verse 16, you get to the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? So we come through that. That's the first time through the tribulation period, culminating with the second coming of Christ. The second one is in chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. Chapter 11. Verses 13 through 16. And you see, can you, can you already see, folks, if you understand how God's laid this book out, you won't lose your way in there. But you see, you come to this thing with an American mindset and you just pass right over these things and, and you're thinking in a line, you'll get the events that are in this book so messed up, so discombobulated, you'll never find your way out if you're thinking in a line. You've got to see the way he presents it. Here, check it out. Chapter 11, verse 13. In the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, and the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God. So that's the second time through. Now the third account is in chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. Chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even to the horse bridle, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. 
for the third time through. And now we begin that fourth and final time, which culminates in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. Verses 11 through 21. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them in a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and, and wrath of Almighty God. And we, you, most of you are familiar and more familiar with that account of the second coming of Christ than probably the others, and we won't take the time to read through all of that. But if you're ever gonna if you're ever gonna understand the book of Revelation, you've got to understand the theme and what God keeps trying to do. He keeps trying to show you that theme, these four different ways as you're coming through that. And what's kind of wild is if you back off from that thing and you begin to look at the first coming of Christ compared to his second coming, and you just kind of kind of look at this thing, what you begin to see is that that God has laid out this thing and laid out His Bible in such a consistent manner that only God Himself could have done it. You see, when Christ came to this earth at His first coming, this is on your study sheet on the back if you're not already there, when Christ came to this earth at His first coming, Rome was in power. And you know what that means to most Christians? Nothing. But when Jesus Christ comes back to this planet the second time, take a wild stab at who it is going to be that is going to be in power at that time. It's going to be Rome once again. You come to Revelation chapter 17, and it's just, it is so clear, it even tells you that it is the city on seven hills. And the colors are of purple and scarlet and gold and all. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to begin to see who's going to be in power when the second coming of Christ takes place. When he came to this earth the first time, the Jews were in the homeland. And guess what? When he comes to this earth the second time, the Jews will be in their homeland. In 1948, after almost 1,900 years without a homeland, the Jews started making their way back, and they've been doing that for the last 50 years, and during the tribulation period, when, when God once again for, uh, focuses His attention on the nation of Israel, it is just going to happen all the more. And I don't know if you know this or not, but what's interesting is, is the fact that though the Old Testament in our Bibles, it, it is, it's the same exact books that comprise the, the, the books of the Jewish Bible, the order of those books is, is different. Our, our Bible ends with, in the Old Testament, ends with the book of Malachi, right? Well, the, the Jews, in their Bible, their book ends with the book of Chronicles, the second Chronicles in, in our Bible. And what's interesting is that our Old Testament ends in Malachi chapter 4 with the message, Jesus is coming back. And you begin to look and you see in the Jewish Bible, in the book of Second Chronicles, you know what the message to them is in Second Chronicles 36, verse 23? The message is, get back up to Jerusalem. Isn't that strange? The message to the church, Jesus is coming. The message to the nation of Israel is get back in the homeland. Get back where you belong. So, at the first coming, Rome was in power at the second coming. Rome was in power. The first coming, the Jews were in the homeland. The second coming, the Jews will be in the homeland. Something else. When Christ came to this earth the first time, he came in two stages. In the first stage, he appeared privately, secretly, alone at night to his chosen disciples. And of course, that was Joseph and Mary and the shepherds, right? Did you get all that? In the second stage, 30 years after his birth, at the ministry of John the Baptist, he appeared publicly to his enemies. 
And when Christ comes at His second coming, it's also going to be in two stages. In the first stage, He will appear privately in a mystery as a thief in the night to catch out His chosen disciples. An event that we call the rapture of the church. In the second stage, seven years after the rapture, once again, He will appear publicly to His enemies, what we call the second coming of Jesus Christ. And in the Bible, there are four accounts of His first coming. And what do we call them? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The four Gospels. And you see, that's why in the Bible there are four accounts in the book of Revelation of His second coming because the Bible's consistent. You've got four in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the first coming, four accounts of it in the final book, the book of Revelation. So the theme of the book is obviously then the second coming of Christ. But what's also amazing is the fact that not only does the Bible show its consistency through the similarities between His first and second comings, it also shows its consistency through the contrast between His first and second comings. First of all, let me show you the contrast between His first and second comings just from what's revealed in our text this morning. Chapter 1 and verse 7. You can go back there if you're not already there. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. But when He came the first time, He came veiled, robed in a body of human flesh. But at His second coming, verse 7 says, He will come revealed, robed in clouds of glory. When He made His entrance to this earth the first time, as we mentioned just a minute ago, it was only witnessed by a few. But when He makes His entrance to this earth again, it will be witnessed by all. Verse 7 says, Every eye shall see Him. Not a lot of eyes will see Him. Every eye shall see Him. When He came the first time, only the angels of heaven shouted. And they shouted, Glory to God in the highest. But verse 7 says, when He comes at His second coming, it won't just be the angels of heaven shouting. Look at the middle of verse 7. All kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation on this earth will shout in that day. And they won't all be shouts of glad tidings and joy and on earth, peace and goodwill to men. It says, all kindreds of the earth shall wail. And we'll see that as we further when we look in verse 7 in detail. But let's skip ahead verse 7 right now to chapter 19 that we looked at just a minute ago. You don't necessarily need to turn there, just in your mind. And let me show you the consistency of the Bible through the contrast between His first and second comings from Revelation chapter 19. As we already mentioned, this is the fourth account in Revelation chapter 19 of the second coming. And it's just so obvious through the things that God specifically identifies about that event that He's wanting us to see the contrast. Because you see, when He came the first time, he lived an absolutely sinless life before the, the, the people on the planet. He was, right before their very eyes, he was fulfilling the very prophecies of the Scriptures that they knew so well, but they finally brought him out to kill him. And they, they beat him, and they beat him, and they, they, they blindfolded him, and, and it was just humiliating. They, they took the, a whip, and they began to just take the flesh off of his back and then after they had done that on your study sheet, they mockingly placed upon his butchered back, Matthew 27, verse 28 says, they put on his back a scarlet robe. But Revelation 19, 13 says that when he comes to this earth at his second coming, he will once again be wearing a scarlet robe, but this time it won't be his blood that stains it. Revelation 19, verse 13 says it will be the blood of his enemies. They brought him out, he who was their king, and the only crown he ever wore was the crown of thorns that Matthew 27, verse 29 says they put on his head. 
But when he comes the second time, Revelation 19.12 says he won't just be wearing a crown. He'll be wearing many crowns, and they won't be crowns of thorns. A king carries a, a, a scepter to, to symbolize his authority. He holds it in his right hand. And as they were about to crucify him, Matthew 27, verse 29 says, they went and they got him a scepter. They got a reed, which is nothing more than a stick. And they mockingly put that stick in his hand, representing his authority. This is the kind of king you are. This is the kind of authority you have. And they put a common reed, a stick, into his hand. But when he comes again, you'll have a He'll have a different kind of scepter in his hand. Revelation 19.15 says he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. After they nailed him to the cross at his first coming, John 19.19 says they mockingly put a sign above his head that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And remember the Jews, they, they didn't even like that. They said, no, no, no don't, don't put that. Put that he said that he was the king of the Jews. But buddy, when he comes again, Revelation 19.16 says, his very garments themselves will be a sign. And that sign will read, the king of kings and lord of lords. And you see, once you begin to understand just what the second coming of Christ is actually going to be, and, and what it is actually going to mean as far as his glory is concerned, then you begin to understand why it is the theme of, uh, of this book that God included as the final book in His Word that He told us in the very first verse of the thing was given to reveal Jesus Christ for who He really is and what He really deserves. And again, if you're going to keep the book of Revelation straight, you better understand what the theme is. Now, now I want you to listen very carefully. I've, and I've tried to, to just show you through overviewing the content of the book of Revelation and showing you how God lays this thing out. I'm trying to get you to see that the theme of the book of Revelation is the second coming of Jesus Christ. But folks, listen. That is, it is so much bigger than you have ever imagined in your life. Not only is the second coming of Christ the theme of the book of Revelation and the key to understanding the book, the second coming of Jesus Christ is the theme of the entire book of God's revelation, what we're talking about, the Bible. It is the theme of the entire Bible. And if you're ever going to understand your Bible, you've got to understand what that theme is. And, and I'm telling you, this is going to sound like uh, preacher talk. He, he's, he, he's making you know more of this than, than, than it is. He's overstating this. But I'm telling you, you'll never really understand the Bible if you hold in your hands until you understand the theme of the entire thing is the same theme of the book of Revelation. It's the second coming of Jesus Christ. The, the second coming of Jesus Christ has been God's focus since the beginning of time. And you, 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 oh, I, I hope that I can get you to see this. Because you see, because we don't understand that, because we don't see that that's really what God has been after all along. That's really been the focal point as far as God is concerned. And we begin coming through the Bible and we get ourselves confused in a lot of different places. What we tend to do with the Bible, what we tend to do with every other area of our life. We make ourselves the focal point. Are you hearing me? What we tend to do, and, and, and listen, we, we've all done it, a lot of the folks that are in this room right now, one of the reasons you have a difficult time understanding the Bible is because you come to this book and think that, that you're the focal point. Now, let, let me give you an example of what I mean. Let's suppose that all of a sudden, just like John had happened to him, he was on the Isle of Patmos, and all of a sudden he's transported to the very throne room of God to, to see these incredible things. And so I want you to imagine is all of a sudden, that happens for you. And man, you just blasted right out of here and you're, you're right up there. And, and when you've, you've gained your composure enough to, to open your eyes, God begins to, to show you something. And what He does is right from His throne room, He pulls out a, His calendar. 
and, and this calendar, it, it covers the entire history of, of the world. And then you just you start thumbing through it, you know, page after page. And, and day after day as you're going through this stuff, there's stuff written down on this calendar, but you don't know what it is because it's written in, in Hebrew. Chances are good. We're all going to know Hebrew when we get there, you know. I, we all think that, you know, God's speaking English and all that kind of deal. I think it's kind of like tongues, you know, by the time he gets there, he's, he's hearing it in Hebrew. But, but all, all of that to say, you're looking at this thing, and, it, and it's written in Hebrew. You don't know Hebrew, and so it just looks like chicken scratch. But you finally come to, to a day on this calendar that is unlike anything else in, in the whole calendar. And on this day, just like the same way we do with our calendars at home, on this day, God has, he has circled it. He has starred it. He's smiley-faced it. He's highlighted it. He has exclamation-pointed it. I mean, it's just, it's, it's all there, and, and God sees you looking at, at, at that thing, and He says, do you know what that day is? And you say, well, I, I know this, it's, it's obviously the most important day on your entire calendar. And He says, you're right. But do you know what that day is? And you say, yes, I, I know what that day is. That is the day. Jesus Christ shed His blood and died on the cross to pay for the sins of mankind. Now listen very carefully. God loves you this morning more than I could ever in a million years communicate to you. You were so important to Him that He willingly gave His only begotten Son to die on the cross in our place. But please, don't think for a minute that the most important day on God's calendar was the day when from heaven He watched as His beloved Son was brutalized in all of the ways that we just talked about as you were coming through our little chart, filling in all of our little blanks. Don't think for a second as as He was watching as as His only begotten Son was being scourged with that whip, exposing His raw flesh, and as Josephus said, even His internal organs would have been in view by the time that was, was done. And don't think for a minute as God from heaven was watching as they pushed that thorn of crowns, that, that crown of thorns down on His brow, and, and as He watched as those nails were pounded into His hands and feet, don't think for a minute as God was watching all of that, and He hears His only begotten Son cry out, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? Because He had literally become sinful. Please do not think for a minute that that's the day that has been circled and starred and highlighted and smiley-faced and exclamation pointed on God's calendar. That wasn't it. That was, that was a day that when for, for God... Now, now, now listen, I, before you get this out of bounds, I know, I know that God never lost the glorious purpose of what was, what was taking place down there on that, that cross. I understand all of that. But listen, that was for God the most horrendous day in His eternal existence. Do you believe that? I mean, guys, He loves us. And that's why all that was happening. But that was His beloved, only begotten Son. That was a day that grieved Him. That was, that was a day that broke His heart. And again, no doubt, He planned it. And I, and I Don't even come after the service and tell me. I already know Isaiah says that it pleased the Lord for this to happen. I know that. That's because He loves us that much. I'm not losing sight of that. But and if he had it all new over again, he'd do it all over again. But that was the most horrendous day God ever has experienced in all of his existence. Listen, the day on God's calendar that is hard and highlighted and smiley faced and exclamation pointed and whatever else you do with your calendar. It wasn't that day. It was, it will be the day, and it is the day 
that when Jesus Christ comes back to this earth, He puts His enemies under His feet. Satan is bound and cast into the bottomless pit. He comes to this planet, establishes His millennial kingdom where He sits on His throne in Jerusalem. And from that throne, He rules and reigns over all the nations of the world, finally receiving the glory that He deserves. That's the day. That's the great day that God is looking for. In fact, it's even called that in the Bible. Did you know that? It is called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The day when His Son comes back to this earth the second time. And you see, that's been His focus since the beginning of time. And like I said, God loves you and you are supremely important to Him. But we aren't the theme of the Bible. And you see, because most Christians think that we are, we come to, we come to the Bible and we try to approach this whole thing from a, a Christian perspective. We read the Bible and all we see is the cross. All we see is salvation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And of course, listen, for us, wow. Is there a more supreme day in all the world than the day that Jesus Christ died on the cross to take your sins away? Man, not to me. Buddy, I'm telling you, that's a day that changed my life. The blood of Jesus Christ was applied to my life and all of the sins that I had ever committed in my whole life were removed and taken away. And that's a monumental day. But you see, i got to be very careful. I can't go to the Bible and try to interpret it through Christian eyes because if I try to do that, I'll get myself all messed up. The second coming of Christ is not only the focal point of, of God since the beginning of time, the second coming of Christ, secondly, has also been the focus of every prophet since the beginning of the world. This has been in God's heart. It's been God's focus. But it's also been the focus of every prophet since the world began. And you say, oh yeah, right. Yeah, that, that's your opinion, and yeah, you're preaching the message, and so you get to make statements like that, you know, and you know, blanket statements that, you know, catch all and all that. No, that's not a blanket statement that I'm making. It's a blanket statement that God Himself made. Turn back to the book of Acts. New Testament, you hit the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then there's next the book of Acts, and check out chapter 3. In chapter 3, Peter and John are at the temple and, and they heal a guy and, and it attracts a crowd. And so Peter sees it as an open door. And it was an open door to, to preach to these folks in, in verse 12. And he doesn't mince for words, as you can see. He's, not, he's a lot like Frank. He, he tells him just straight out there. He tells him in verse 15 that they killed the Prince of Life. I mean, boy, what a message. Hey, fellas, you know what? You killed the Prince of Life and you got to love the the paradox in that, you killed the prince of life. You know, I mean, wow. And in verse 19, he says, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and He shall send Jesus Christ. What's that event? Sending Jesus Christ. He's already died, buried, and rose again. Okay, at this point, He will send Jesus Christ which was before preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which is a reference to the second coming of Christ, when He's going to restore things on this planet to their intended purpose from the very beginning. The times of restitution of all things, and now watch this, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. Do you see that? The second coming of Christ is a message that God has been delivering through every single one of His holy prophets since the beginning of the world. Turn over to the book of Jude for a second. <coughs> the book of Jude, the, the book right before the book of Revelation. Next to last book in your Bible. 
It's, a, it's just a real short one there. One chapter in this thing. And I want you to look with me in verse 14. It says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam. We don't have time to get into that again, but if you've been here, man, you, you just got to look at that thing and go, wah, 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 wah. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. I mean, this is way back now, guys. What did he prophesy? Here it is. Behold, the Lord cometh. Oh, well, being way back then, that must be his, his first coming, right? No. The message was, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of His saints. Are you checking that out? You know what event that is? That's not the first coming of Christ. That's the second coming of Christ. Enoch, count on the seventh from Adam, was preaching about the second coming of Christ thousands of years before Christ came the first time. And what did, did Enoch's message give as the reason that he was coming with ten thousands of his saints? Verse 15, he's coming to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. You know what He's coming back to do? He's coming back to stamp out all ungodliness. How do you know that? I mean... God is just like, he, he didn't know for sure if we were going to have highlighters or anything, so he thought, I'll, I'll just, I'll work them on this all ungodly, all ungodly, all ungodly. And, and listen, if you're here this morning, you've never entered a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you need to understand that that ungodliness that he's coming to stamp out is yours. All of the ungodliness in all of our lives. He's coming to make restitution, as Peter said in Acts chapter 3. He's coming back to settle the score. And God says, this has been the theme of every message preached by every one of my holy prophets since the world began. And man, you begin to check it out, and what you find in your Bible is that there are over eight hundred references to the second coming of Christ in your Bible. Eight hundred of them. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The second coming of, of Christ. And, and, and right now we, we've got the, I've got all kinds of scripture that are up on the, the screen. We don't have time to, to get into those this morning. We, we may find a way to work them in next week. But suffice it to say, God's already told you in Acts chapter 3, He's already told you that all of His holy prophets have been preaching about this since the world began. And you get, you've got on your study sheet there, you've got a list of all of these different, all of these different prophets of God that we're all talking about. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And if we would have taken the time to go through those references this morning, what you would begin to find out, we're going to do this next week as we go through in detail in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 when it talks about that day. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And what you're going to find out is that day is like no other day in all of the other days of mankind. There's never been a day like that. Even Everything about that day is going to be different. You'll, you'll see that next week. But you come through there and it's talking about the judgment of God coming on this planet. The judgment of God. He is coming and He is going to be vindicated because folks, the vindication that is deserved when we crucified the Lord of glory through our sin on that cross, folks, God's going to get His day. It is going to happen. And all of God's holy prophets have been talking about that day. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And I do want you to turn to just one with me. And I want you, I want you to just see this. Go back to the book of Joel in your Old Testament. Right there toward the end of, uh, end of the Old Testament, the book of Joel.
Look at verse, <clears throat> look at Joel chapter 1, verse 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as the destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, chapter 2, verse 1. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. Drop down to verse 10 of chapter 2. The earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark. And the stars shall withdraw their shining. And the Lord shall utter His voice before His army. For His camp is very great. For He is strong that executeth His word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. And who can abide it? And watch this. Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. I want you to see this. What God is trying to get you to see. That second coming of Christ, it is coming and it's going to be a day of destruction from the Almighty. So, now, do you see that again? Verse 12, therefore also now, before all of that begins to bust loose, before all that begins to take place on this planet, turn ye, the Lord says, even to me with all of your heart and with fasting and weeping and with mourning. Do whatever you can do, but come to, come to Christ. Come to the Lord. Repent now, before then. Verse 13, and rend your heart, not your garments. In other words, don't just go through, you know, some little ritualistic little deal. Okay. He's saying the issue is your heart. Turn your heart to the Lord. Rend your heart, not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth Him of the evil. Listen, there is a day of evil that is coming on this planet. But God doesn't want you to have to be the recipient of that. He is gracious and merciful and compassionate and forgiving and loving. And this morning, He stands with open arms wanting to embrace you, wanting you to turn. But He's not going to turn you. You've got to turn you from your way. And look at chapter 3. In verse 14, multitudes, multitudes, in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And we could apply this, make the application to the people in this room this morning. And there are, I don't know how many multitudes that are in this room this morning who are still in the, the valley of decision about what you will do with Christ. You see, it's a valley. Because on one side, there is the mountain of God's will. And the other mountain is the mountain of your will. And what you find yourself in this room, being faced with the fact that Jesus Christ is soon coming back to this planet. Did you see what it said? It's at hand. The day of the Lord is near. It's right upon us, and that's never been more true than it is today. If you stand in a valley between God's will and your will, left with a decision. You're in a valley of decision between God's way and your way. You're in a valley of decision on this side, a mountain of your sin, on this side, a mountain of our Savior. You're in a valley of decision. And Joel says, listen, there's a lot of people in that valley. A lot of people faced with the decision of what they will do in light of who Christ is, in light of what He has revealed about Himself and about the events that are very near uh, upon us. And, and, and guys, we don't have the time to, to go in, into all of it this morning, but listen, every time that you see God talk about this day. It is such a horrendous day. And yet you constantly find God trying to bring you back to this message 
turn. Turn your heart. Don't. Don't wait until then. You're in the valley of decision. So make the right choice right now before all of those things begin to take place. There's a lot of you folks, you've been coming over the last seven or so weeks now, and you've been taking all this thing in, and you want to find out about the, the message of, of Revelation. You've got to just ask yourself right now, what, what, why, what's, your, what's your motive in that? What's your purpose? Is it because you want to, you want to find out, you want this to tickle your intellect? You want it to, to satisfy your, your intellectual curiosities? What, what's the real motive that you have? God says, let me tell you why I've been drawing you to this place. I've been drawing you to a valley of decision. I want you to see what's going to take place. And in light of what's going to take place, I want you to see where you are. And it's time that you make a choice. We're not going to be able to, to finish our outline this morning. We'll just uh, we'll find a way to work it into next week. <clears throat> and if you need to pack up, that's, that's, that's cool. But, but let's just try to pull it in for just a sec. I, I, I tried to show you this morning that God is He's incredible just in, in how, he's, how He's laid this book out. This book just any way you slice it, it lines up. And you know what? You you gotta begin to to watch as you as you watch this thing is that all of God's holy prophets have been preaching about the same events since the world began. And that was over a period of fifteen hundred years, where most of these men never had the opportunity to collaborate with one another, and yet they all talk about the same events using the same terms in the same context and all described it the same exact way and never had a telephone. Most of them, many of them, lived hundreds and hundreds of years apart and never even read what anybody else said about it. And they all say the same thing, the same way. And what you've got to see is God just is saying, you know what, my day is coming. My day is coming. My son has been blasphemed. He's been rejected. He's been spat upon, cursed, defied, denied, all of that. But buddy, there's coming a day. My day. The day of the Lord. The day I've circled, starred, highlighted, smiley faced, exclamation pointed. My day. My son is coming. And in light of him coming, I'm giving all of you an opportunity now to receive him. Because what he did on that day as I looked out of heaven and had to hear that awful cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That whole thing is so that you might be able to have a relationship with me. And guys, right now, right now, that opportunity is available to you. The Lord Jesus Christ stands before you today as a lamb. The lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. But there's coming a day when he will be the lion from the tribe of Judah executing judgment on this earth. Right now, right now is your time. Let's pray. Now if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ, what you got today was the heart of the Bible. What you got is God showing you here's where this thing is going. Here's the theme. And it's put you in a valley, hasn't it? And it, you know what? That valley is, is the most blessed place that you can be. The valley of decision. What will you do with Christ on one side of the mountain with open arms Self, self-will, self-seeking, Satan, this world on the other side with open arms. This morning, whether you 
whether you want to or not, do, do you see you're in a valley of decision about what you will do? And our, our prayer, our heart's desire for you is that you would, that your eyes this morning have been opened to the reality of who Christ is and that you would make the same decision that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that are all around you this morning have come to the place that they have made in their life. Listen, you'll never be in a group of people that is more sympathetic to where you are right now in your life because we've all been in that same valley of decision. And our prayer for you this morning is that you will respond to the Lord Jesus Christ and His invitation for you to open your heart to receive Him in the forgiveness that He provides for you through the shed blood that He offered for you on the cross. And that can, that can be applied to your life today. Father, I do pray for these folks that are in a valley of decision this morning. And I pray, O oh Lord, <clears throat> I pray that You would open the eyes of their understanding to You to see who You really are. And I pray that this would be the day of salvation for many people in this room. And I pray that You would help those of us that already know You to take these truths and make them practical in our life to show us what the theme of our life needs to be, the theme of our schedule and our, our, our days and our nights and our investments. Lord, help us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.